0: The gospel according to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter and in fact an ancient church historian named Papias he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together he's carefully designed this story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Marx designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the Acts focuses on repeated theme. So in Act 1, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it unfolds. After the opening line, Mark begins with a quotation from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Malachi, who said that God would send a messenger to Israel to prepare them for when God would show up himself to rescue his people and become their king. And Mark introduces John the Baptist as that messenger. And then right when you expect God to show up personally, Mark introduces Jesus. And as he comes onto the scene, the heavens open, God's spirit descends on Jesus, and God says, you are my beloved son. After this, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' core message. He went about Galilee, announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. Jesus is carrying forward the story from the Old Testament scriptures about God's rescue operation for His world. Through Jesus, God is restoring His reign over the world by confronting and defeating evil and its hold on people's lives. And then, by inviting them to live under His reign by following Jesus. From here, Mark's given us a big block of stories showing us Jesus' power as he brings God's kingdom. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken or under the oppression of dark spiritual powers. And Jesus even does something that for Jewish people only God has the right to do. He forgives people's sins. And Jesus' actions here produce lots of different responses. So some people follow him and become his disciples. Other people don't know what to think, and still others reject him completely, especially Israel's leaders who accuse him of blaspheming God and being empowered by evil. But Jesus isn't surprised by these responses. In fact, he draws attention to it. In chapter 4, Mark has collected many of Jesus' parables about the hidden, mysterious nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that his message is like seed falling on different types of soil. Some are receptive, some are not. Or it's like a mustard seed that's very tiny. It seems insignificant, but then it grows huge and surprises everyone. Jesus' point is that he really is the Messiah bringing God's kingdom but it doesn't look like what anybody expected. And this growing confusion about Jesus among the crowds is connected to a key idea Mark emphasizes at the end of act one that even among Jesus' disciples there's confusion. Even they are struggling to grasp who Jesus really is and that brings us to act two. It begins with a crucial conversation. Jesus takes the disciples aside and he asks, who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up saying, you're the Messiah. But it becomes clear that for Peter, this means that Jesus is a victorious military king from the line of David who will rescue Israel from the Romans. But for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who will bring God's rule by giving up his life in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't get it. They think following King Jesus is going to mean fame and status and importance. And Jesus makes it clear that following him is actually like dying, like carrying your own cross. It means rejecting violence and pride and selfishness and giving one's life out for others in acts of service and love. He has the same conversation with them two more times and it all culminates in Jesus's important statement that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still don't get it. They respond in confusion and fear. And so here in Act 2, Mark has placed another key story that echoes the book's introduction. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountain, and he's suddenly transformed. He's radiating with light and glory, and a cloud envelops them. Now, this is just like the glory of the God of Israel that showed up long ago on Mount Sinai. And then the two prophets who stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, they appear next to Jesus as God announces again, This is my beloved Son. Now, by placing this story in the middle of all these conversations in Act 2, Mark is making an astounding claim that Jesus, God's son, is the physical embodiment of God's own glory. And in Jesus, the glorious God of Israel is going to become king by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people. It's a puzzling claim that confuses and scares the disciples as they leave the mountain, which brings us to act three. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation, and his disciples will be persecuted just like him, until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus' arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2, except this time it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus' voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in the story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, and an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead, and so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee, and the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God, that God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you gonna run away like the disciples? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark Is all about.
1: And that's what we're going to spend the next 15 months exploring. Uh, For the next 15 months, we are going to work our way through the Gospel of Mark to see the power of Jesus on display, to see his love on display as he gives his life for the world, for the redemption of sins to see what it is to follow Jesus on that way. Uh, now, we'll take breaks. We're not going to go 15 months straight and never, or, and never take a break. We're going to take some breaks. We're going to do some other things. But let me ask you a question. Why would we do that? As a church family, why would we spend 15 months working our way through the gospel of Mark? Here's, here's a couple of reasons. My number one reason is just that you would come to love and worship Jesus more than you ever have before. That as we go through this gospel, which was likely, not not certain, but likely was the first gospel that was written, as we work our way through this gospel, that you would just come to see what it is to love and worship Jesus. Many of us, not everybody, but many of us who are a part of Emmaus have been around church for a long time, and if we're not careful, our hearts grow cold, toward the Lord, say, I've read Mark before. For that matter, I've read the whole Bible a couple of times before. I've been around the block a time or two when it comes to church, but do you love Jesus? Do you worship him? Do you know what it is to give your life to him, to follow after him, and and knowing that it's not just something that you believe in your head, it's not just something you do out of obligation, but you see how good he is, and how powerful he is, and how glorious he is, and that you give your life to him, and as you do, as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark, that your life would be transformed. That the more we look to Jesus, the more we learn about how he lived, about how he operated, that it would change the way that we speak, and and the way that we act. Oftentimes when you read a biography about someone, you're not just learning about your life, you're, you're wanting to learn about that person so that you would live differently as a result. And sometimes I worry that when we read the Gospels, we read about Jesus, and we get this information, and it's theological information, but when we read about Jesus, we want to live like Jesus. We want to act like Jesus. We want to speak like Jesus. And so the more we can work our way through the Gospel of Mark, the more we can look at Jesus, the more it transforms how we as a church live and speak and operate. And then finally... We go through a book like this, verse after verse, working our way through it, just so that we would become better readers of the Bible, more devoted readers, more devoted interpreters of scripture. We say we're followers of Jesus, we wanna know the word of God, (laughs) to know the word of God and then to be able to turn around and share it with others, to go down and understand individual words and phrases and sentences, and then to be able to back up and get the big picture And and to take a gospel and follow themes through the gospel and then see how that same theme weaves its way through the whole scripture, that as you work your way through the gospel of Mark and we do this together, it changes the way you read all of scripture. Because you're seeing all of these themes and ideas come together and then we're able to hone in on individual words and ideas and phrases. We're at the beginning of a new year. (laughs) So we're at this time when people make these new commitments and, and new resolutions and, One of your resolutions may be that you want to work your way through Scripture. And I I hope that that is. And let me encourage you this morning. January 2nd, we're starting a new sermon series. We're working our way through Mark. If you don't have a plan for reading Scripture or working your way through Scripture, this is a perfect time to get started uh, on that. Several of us last year worked our way through a study called the Bible Recap, uh, you can find the Bible Recap reading plan on that Bible app on your phone, the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you find the Bible Recap. There's a podcast that goes along with it. If you want to know more about it, I know there's a group of ladies who read it together uh, last year and maybe doing that again this year. If you're looking for somebody just to be able to read their scripture with, it's a really, really good option, a really good way to do that. Our family, we're just going to work through the New Testament together as a family, just reading the New Testament. You can find these Bible plans uh, in in the Bible app on your phone and share them with people in your family or friends working through Scripture together. Uh, For some people, if it's been a long time since you read the Bible and you don't know where to start, maybe just start with the Gospel of Mark and just say, my only goal this year, at least for the beginning of the year, is every day I'm going to open up and I'm just going to read a section from the Gospel of Mark. That is a really good place to start when you're thinking about what it means to know and follow Jesus. So as we're thinking about this, and we're thinking about we're going to spend this long in the Gospel of Mark, it's probably good to know who this Mark is. Like, who are we talking about here? So let me introduce you to, uh, to Mark a little bit. John Mark, as he's often known. We learn about John Mark quite a bit in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, went to the house of Mary the mother of John, which would have been his Jewish name, whose other name was Mark, which had been his Roman name, where many were gathered together and were praying. So what we learn up front is that Mark was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but he is connected with Peter through this relationship of, of John Mark's mom, Mary. Not, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, another Mary. One thing I would point out to you here, his name, John Mark, John, Jewish name, Mark, Roman name, that's actually really important for studying the gospel. When we look through Mark, and really when we look through all of the New Testament, we're always looking for what is the Jewish background to what I'm reading? And what is the Roman or the Greco-Roman background, the historical background to what I'm reading? And both of those pieces often come together to tell you what the Scripture means and what's going on there. And so as we're looking through the Gospel, we're always going to have one focus on the Jewish background of what we're reading. And then we're going to have another focus on the Roman background, the Greco-Roman background of what we're reading. And that comes together even in John Mark's name, his Jewish name and his Roman name. Here's the next thing we learn about John Mark. He comes later in Acts He's a part of the first missionary journey. It says that Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. How incredible is this, that he was able to be a part of one of these early missionary journeys. Except, (laughs) except we know that when it came time for the next journey, Mark was not really invited to go along. Um, his contract was not renewed because when you get to Acts chapter 15 you find that Barnabas wanted to take with them John who was called Mark but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work here's the background probably John Mark is pretty young when he's invited to come along on this missionary journey Barnabas from what we know in Scripture, is the encourager. He's the one who's saying, come on, he's, he's also John Mark's cousin, so he kind of has that weird family obligation, like I really don't like my cousin, but I need to bring him along with me to be a part of this whole like endeavor. Paul seems like a pretty hard-driving fella. Like He's go- out there, we've got places to go, people need to hear about Jesus, we're going to get things done. Somewhere along the way, Mark seems to get scared and run home to his mommy. Uh, he just kind of withdraws from them. He backs out. Now, we don't know what exactly happened. If it was a sickness, we don't know what happens. But Paul says, yeah, guys that leave missionary trips, I don't really want them on my team. Barnabas says, no, I think we should take him. And it leads to this split. Now, think about this for a second. Who knows, who knows a thing or two about deserting the mission that they're supposed to be on? Who knows a thing or two about backing away from a commitment that they've made? Peter. Peter knows a thing or two. Who do we know that Mark has been connected to from the time that he was young? Peter. And what you find is that Mark and Peter are linked in the story of early Christianity. That Peter becomes the source of the information that Mark uses when Mark writes his gospel. And I think, now we don't have anything direct to to know that this is the case, but I think that one of the things that linked Peter and Mark is they both knew what it felt like to back away from a commitment and then to be restored. To back away from the mission of Jesus and then to be drawn back into the mission of Jesus. And we find information from the early church That in about the 60s A.D., Mark and Peter are hanging out in Rome. And Peter is probably feeding Mark all of this information about what it was like to follow Jesus and be with Jesus. And they're spending this time together in Rome in the 60s A.D. Here's the other thing that's going on in Rome in the 60s A.D. Persecution against the Christians is ramping up. There's a fire that happens in Rome in the 60s A.D., Who's blamed for that fire? The Christians are blamed for that fire. Persecution starts to go up. It is a politically turbulent time in Rome in the mid-60s. You have this guy named Nero, who's the emperor, and if you know anything about Nero, he's crazy, and at the end of his life, things really spiral out of control. So you have persecution against Christians, you have a chaotic political scene, and you have other factors in the area that are causing all these hard life circumstances And in the middle of that world, here's Peter and Mark sharing information about Jesus, and Mark produces what is likely the first gospel. What is Mark doing in producing this gospel? He's highlighting how hard it is to follow Jesus. When the world is falling down around you, what does it look like to remain faithful to Jesus? And how does he begin this? He begins in Mark 1.1 with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we find in our Bible that we have four different gospels. And people are like, well, why do we have four gospels? Why not just one gospel? The beauty of four gospels is we are able to see from different perspectives what it means to know and worship and follow Jesus. This is an oversimplification, okay? You could poke holes in this all day long, but this is a really nice, pattern to think about what do we have in these four different gospels that Matthew gives us a gospel that's largely devoted to the Jewish people, to Jewish background of Jesus, this, this background of what it means for Jesus to be the king of the world. Mark's gospel is written to more of a Roman audience, Mark's gospel is written to emphasize Jesus as the servant, the one who would come. And we're going to find out what servant means. It means all these other things included. Luke's gospel is written to more of a Greek audience, and, and he's focusing on Jesus as the Son of Man, calling those who are the outcasts, calling people who are not included. And then John's gospel is this beautiful theological presentation of Jesus that's written for the whole world to show what it is for Jesus to be the Son of God. With each of those things, here's what I want you to hear this morning. In the middle of turbulent times, in the middle of difficulty, what do these four Gospels not give us? They don't give us a list of wisdom literature. They don't give us a list of wise sayings. They don't give us a list of advice. They don't give us a list of laws. They point us back to Jesus. In the middle of turbulent times, when the world seems to be falling apart, persecution against Christians is increasing, political turmoil is going around, life's just hard, they point us back to Jesus. Jesus says that those who are weary and heavy burden come to me. To be weary means you're just worn down by life. To be heavy burdened means you're worn down by religion. And we have a lot of people in the world who are worn down by life and worn down by religion. And Jesus says, come to me. Look to me, find in me the power and love and hope of the gospel. And so what we're gonna do is right now, we're gonna celebrate what it is to look back to Jesus, to make much of Jesus. Right in the middle of this, we're gonna stand and sing two of our favorite songs that put our eyes and our focus and our hearts back on Jesus, and we're gonna sing about those things, celebrate those things together, and then I'm gonna come back And we're going to work our way through verse 1. I mean, we're making crazy progress this first week when it comes to, remember, we got 15 months. Like, we're going for Easter 2023 here. We're not in a hurry. Uh, We're just going to look a little bit at verse 1 to lay a foundation for who Jesus is. And then we're going to sing the final song today, and we're going to go out and live the way that Jesus calls us to live. Let me pray for us right now. We're going to stand, we're going to worship, sing about Jesus, and then come back and work our way through verse 1. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for a church that loves and is devoted to the word of God, who's excited about working their way through Scripture, who knows that when we are looking for good news, we look to Jesus. And God, we live in a world that in some interesting ways has reflections of the mid-60s A.D. in Rome, that there's Mark and Peter sitting together, Peter's telling stories about Jesus to Mark. They both know what it is to desert the mission and then be drawn back into the mission. They both know what it is to live in the midst of hard circumstances, and all they want to do is for other people to hear the good news about Jesus. And so, Father, of the next few minutes, help us as a church celebrate that. Help us to know what it is to reflect on Jesus' greatness and the fact that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name.